You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino from the Draft Network, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. Happy Wednesday to you. It's time for Herd Mentality, the podcast each week where you take control of what we talk about by sending in questions and takes and items for me to address. Uh, you could do so either via Twitter at the Joe Marino, shoot me a DM, or send me an email, Joe at the draftnetwork.com. We got a bunch to get to, and let's do it. First one comes from Big Baller Bean Season, who says, We have seen Edmonds' performance drop off without Milano. But have we ever seen Milano's performance without Edmonds? Just a thought that Edmonds is just as important to Milano as he is to Edmonds. Wondering if Milano puts any thought into going to another team slash roster or scheme and how it could affect his play. Well, I think the answer to that question is that we've never really seen an extended amount of time with Milano on the field without Edmonds. Um, outside of that, you know, that rookie season where he was kind of sprinkled in uh, with Ramon Humber as part of that group in 2017 before Tremaine Edmonds was drafted in 2018. And I thought Milano was really flashy um, in those games. You know, I wanted to see more of him. So I don't know that Milano is in is dependent on Edmonds uh, in any way, to be honest with you. I think that uh, he's a good linebacker, uh, an above-average linebacker in the NFL and you know he's gonna get a contract 12 13 14 million dollars a year and uh, he'll do well if that's in Buffalo or somewhere else as long as he can stay healthy Sean says I know that Von Miller has been an edge rusher in a 3-4 his entire career but could he make a shift to a pass rush specialist in the Bills scheme there is a ton of hype for J.J. Watt but in the event we don't get him could Miller be another viable option to make a difference off the edge. Thanks for all you do. Cheers from a longtime listener up in Canada. Thank you, Sean. Yeah, I think I think Miller is definitely a player that could fit. I think here's what I would say about players like Von Miller, and I said this about Brian Burns uh, coming out of Florida State a couple years in the draft. If your defense can't find a way to use that type of skill set effectively, then you got a bad defensive coordinator. Because Von Miller is a player that you should be able to get on the field and regardless of your alignment or fronts that you like to run, you should be able to put him in positions to win. Same with Brian Burns. So I do think that the Bills could get production from Von Miller and if he is cut, which I think a lot of people think could be the case, and the Bills don't get J.J. Watt, I think it's a viable discussion to have. TJ says, I would like to hear your thoughts about Duke Williams as a possible tight end fit for the Bills in 2021. It's a good question. You know, Duke Williams, obviously a bigger bodied receiver that's very physical, you know, um, struggles when it comes to route running and being consistent catching the football from the slot or wide alignments. But as a tight end, um, it's at least interesting to me, especially how the Bills use tight ends kind of more as an H-back where they'll line up in the backfield, they'll be in line, they'll be flexed. You know, they're kind of all over the formation. And so 
I do think it's a spot that interests me in terms of getting Duke Williams in a role that he can help the team because I don't think it's going to happen at wide receiver. Now, with that said, it's uh, definitely going to be something that would be a work in progress and would take time for him to develop at, at and uh, get to a reasonable level where he can help the team. And, you know, he's, you know, can you wait two, three more years for Duke Williams to do that? Well, maybe if he buys in and is willing to be on the practice squad, but you know, I don't know that it puts him any closer to getting on the field and actually helping the offense than it does as him being a practice squad type wide receiver. So I think it's an interesting angle. I'm open to it. I just think that you have to acknowledge the time uh, that it will take for him to get that down and actually be able to help the team. But it could be his best uh, chance to stick. Adam says, do you think with their current cap situation, the Bills could and or should do the following to become better next season. And so Adam has outlined a plan for the offseason. Here it is. Cut, Vernon Butler, John Brown, Quentin Jefferson, uh, Tyler Croft, Lee Smith, Mario Addison. Resign Matt Milano, Darrell Williams, John Feliciano, Isaiah McKenzie, and try to sign J.J. Watt. They will have to count on their young defensive tackle and edge depth to grow, but I think having both Watt and Milano is possible and would be great for their defense moving forward. They may also have to restructure Mitch Morse or just not re-sign Feliciano for this to work. So the moves that you outlined creates $29.6 million in cap space and brings the total available space to $32 million. So is that enough money for you to sign J.J. Watt, re-sign Daryl Williams, re-sign Matt Milano, and you know John Feliciano as well? Um and also your draft class, and make the moves that you need to fill out your roster. It'd be tight. It'd be tight. I think Watt is probably ten million. Darrell Williams is eight. I think Milano's twelve. I think Feliciano's probably five, six, seven, somewhere in that range. You probably need about eight, nine million dollars to sign your draft class. You have other holes that you have to fill on the roster. I mean, it, it, it's certainly. It's certainly within reach. You probably have to do some restructures as well. Um, but if if that's what you want the offseason off to be, J.J. Watt plus bringing back Williams, Feliciano, and Milano, that's kind of the path to do it. I do get concerned in this plan that you're cutting John Brown, and I think if the Bills cut John Brown, they have to replace him. Um, so you know that's a, a big question mark that I would have with this plan. But um, I think it's I think it's doable. Um, but I would have some concerns about depth. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Football might be over, but NBA, college basketball, and the NHL are in full swing. And Bet Online even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV. They have real time updated odds and props on almost anything you can imagine. And Bet Online has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's literally the best way to place your bets and it's free to sign up. Head on over to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit when you use our promo code Locked On. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Next one comes from Stan who says, Help me out, Joe. I'm starting to feel somewhat concerned about Brandon Bean's early round draft pick decision making. Other than Josh Allen, these players have largely not lived up to expectations with many 
that we are in the wait-and-see phase. The players I'm referring to are Cody Ford, Tremaine Edmonds, Devin Singletary, Zach Moss, Ed Oliver, A.J. Epinesa, Dawson Knox, and Harrison Phillips. These first through third round picks are usually where you find some higher end talent. Even Sean McDermott's one solo draft class seemed to have better outcomes. Please help me feel less concerned about this if possible. What am I missing? So let's talk about those players quickly and and maybe get into why they haven't quite reached their ceiling and you know, we're waiting and seeing, as you put it, which I think is a fair way to say um, that they, you know, they haven't necessarily lived up to expectations quite yet. Cody Ford's been injured, I would say, even as a rookie. And of course, last year, injuries have gotten in the way of him, as well as not being in uh, a spot where he can develop and gel. Tremaine Edmonds, you know, I think is a player that has to play better for the team. And I wish he did. And it's, somewhat marred by the fact that he has been a pro bowler the last two years and this past season where I think it was his worst year um, he got in the pro bowl because the players and coaches voted for him you know so on one hand he's a guy that I think needs to play play better while simultaneously I think he's really well respected across the NFL and Tremaine Edmonds is one of those guys that you get real nervous about going somewhere else and becoming a star you know but I want to see it come together this year Devin Singletary and Zach Moss, I think their inability to contribute at a high level like we want them to at this point uh, stems from the construction of those two guys being in the backfield, not necessarily anything that either one of them lacks. I I just don't think it's a good duo. I don't think it's a nice combination of skill sets to have together. Uh, Devin Singletary in 2019 as a rookie, I think everyone was really impressed with him. And there was a lot of uh, excitement about his career, but that didn't continue this past year. And then Zach Moss, uh, a rookie this past year, had injuries uh, early in the season and late in the season. So I don't know that we can say that we know exactly what Moss is, but to your point, we're definitely in wait and see with him. Ed Oliver, kind of like Tremaine Edmonds, uh, minus the Pro Bowls, I think he needs to play better and uh, reach his ceiling this coming year. But he did have quite the curve ahead of him coming from Houston where he played nose tackle to being a penetration style, three technique, and then obviously not having Star Latule was not helpful for his development this past year. A.J. Epinesa, I have nothing to be worried about right now with him. Uh, He was only a rookie that transformed his body. So there's I don't think there's anything to say about Epinesa right now in terms of concern level. Uh, Dawson Knox, I would say he's a player that I always expected to come along slowly. Uh, tremendous physical ability, injuries as a rookie, a hamstring, right, that put him on the sideline for a month uh, during training camp and preseason. And then this past year, COVID, the calf injury, and the concussion. But, you know, I think he actually played better towards the end of this past year, and I'm excited to see him next year. And then Harrison Phillips, another guy that has injuries. So I think the contributing factor to a lot of these guys is injuries and circumstances. But I do think it's fair to say that all of them uh, leave something to be desired when it comes to them being the player we believe Brandon Bean envisioned them to become when he drafted them. I think the biggest thing is health and player development. And I think it goes – there's been some bad luck with some of these players – and I think that um, they need to – some of these guys really need to deliver this coming year. 
Eric says, one question that has been bugging me since the end of the season is what are the Bills doing at right guard? That position does not get the attention like others, such as right tackle, edge, or corner. But if the Bills are going to improve their run game and keep Allen clean, they need a plan here. Even if they manage to re-sign Darrell Williams, currently their only guards include Bakker and Ford and no depth. How do you think they plan to address this position? i love to see Williams re-signed at right tackle, then attack a Tevin Jenkins in round one or Jackson Carmen in round two of the draft. So, predictively, I think the Bills are going to re-sign John Feliciano, and I think you'll see a battle between Bakker and Ford for the other guard position. That's what I think is going to happen. Um, I also think there's a chance it could be Ford and Bakker as the starting guards with Ryan Bates as the backup. You know, I think that's a, a possibility. But I like what you're saying there. Tevin Jenkins in the first round, Jackson Carmen in the second round. Those guys are, are road graders. Those are powerful guys that I think would give the Bills' run game a boost, and I think they're both guys that project favorably to kicking inside uh, to guard after playing tackle in college. So good names to bring to the table. Um, the plan is going to be interesting. I, I feel like – I feel like one of the two things I said earlier might be the answer. You know, I, I think the Bills really like John Feliciano. I do. Uh, whether you like him or not or I like him or not, I think I think they value him a lot. And I I, I would let him walk, but I, I have a feeling that he's going to be a high priority for them to bring back. Matt has a fun one for us. He says, what is your favorite play in general from last season and what was your favorite throw from Josh Allen? For play... I have a hard time picking just one. I think the Zimmer force fumble against New England, uh, Josh Allen hitting Tyler Croft for the game-winning touchdown against the Rams, and then either one of Taron Johnson's pick sixes. Um, you know, one of those four plays feels like it should be the pick for best play in general of the season. But the throw, the throw was an easy one for me to settle on, and this is the one that stands out to me, and has all year long. It's against Miami. Week two, the Bills lead 24-20, 3-17 left in the fourth quarter. Third and nine, the Bills have the ball from the Miami 46. Right, So you have a four-point lead, a little over three minutes left in the game. Points on this drive matters a ton, and it's a third and nine, a third and long here, right? You're, you're – on the fringe of field goal range, you don't want to put your rookie kicker in a situation where he has to make one from like fifth, like deep fifties, and um, you know if he misses it, you give the ball back to Miami with a short field. What does Josh Allen do? He hits John Brown on a deep over route for a touchdown. It was a dagger throw. It was aggressive. And it was a moment of validation for me after watching Josh Allen, you know, dice up the Jets in week one and dice up Miami in that game previously. This was the throw that made me say, oh, yeah, Josh Allen is is legit. Like, he's going to have a great year. And um, obviously, the Bills take a, a, a two-score lead there late in the game. And Josh Allen does the air guitar in Hard Rock Stadium, that's the throw. That was the throw that was my favorite 
uh, in the season. And, and the one I, I always go back to it in my mind, it, it was aggressive, it was timely, and to me it put the league on notice. And you get the added benefit of Josh Allen with an air guitar at Hard Rock Stadium. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. Next one comes from Chris who says, your performance reviews on the defensive tackles and ends got me thinking. Which would you rather have? Jerry Hughes, Ed Oliver, Star Latulale, and J.J. Watt as your starting D-line playing most of the snaps, occasionally spelled by Epinesa, Zimmer, Phillips, and Daryl Johnson, or Hughes, Oliver, Star, and Addison as your starters with a heavy rotation of Epinesa, Jefferson, Butler, and Johnson. Chris continues to say that I also want to give a shout-out to Justin Zimmer. On Taron Johnson's pick six against the Ravens, Trey White got credit for hustling down the field and blocking Lamar as he should, but if you watch Zimmer, he wasn't far behind them. He didn't impact the return, but I love seeing a backup defensive tackle with that much hustle. Yeah, that's the fun thing about Zimmer is he's a great athlete and he plays his ass off. So back to your question, I would want the one that includes Hughes, Oliver, Starr, and Watt with less of a rotation. I think the Bills prioritize rotating, um, which I don't know has produced the results they're hoping for. I want my best players to play the most. And um, so sign me up for Hughes, Oliver, Starr, and Watt being on the field with less depth on the rotation. Um, but, you know, just having having those impact players, those difference makers playing a large percentage of the snaps, that's what I want to see. Next one comes from Tim, who says, do you think Eric Washington will develop into McDermott's defense? I understand that the bottom line is they need to get to the quarterback. However, McDermott's D seems to be more nuanced and have varying requirements from his defensive lineman from play to play. Maybe the same players from last year take another step forward under this philosophy. Swap Butler for Watt, God willing, have an okay draft, and keep developing some of the young players, and I think we'll make a big jump from the development and tinkering alone. We found good players on inexpensive contracts before, and we'll do it again. So it's an interesting question that you ask about Eric Washington developing into the defense. I mean, Eric Washington knows this defense. He was McDermott's defensive line coach in Carolina the entire time that Sean McDermott was the defensive coordinator from 2011 to 2016. So there should be a high level of familiarity when it comes to Sean McDermott's expectations for defensive linemen and Eric Washington's ability to teach that technique. So that was really like the big change when it comes to the Bills coaching staff last year. You know, the the D-line coach that they had took the job with Virginia Tech, which felt to me like hey, bud, Eric Washington is available, and we're going to replace you, so you might want to go find something else to do. So <laughs> nobody leaves the Bills job to go be an ACC defensive line coach. You know, that's a lateral – that's not even a lateral move. That's a backwards move. Uh, so I think this is very much the Bills wanted to have Eric Washington. He should be familiar, and a lot of those guys are familiar, right? Like the only player that didn't have experience under McDermott – that became a, a significant part of the rotation this past year is Quentin Jefferson and A.J. Epinesa. Everyone else has multiple years in the system. So, you know, I don't know that I buy a whole lot of the uh, um, excuse that Eric Washington needed this year 
to detail expectations for techniques. I don't know. I, I'm not, I wasn't buying that at all whenever that was said in the year-end press conferences. Need to tell you guys about Built Bar. It's the best-tasting protein bar on the planet. They have 18 amazing flavors. Some of my favorites include caramel brownie, cookies and cream, coconut almond is delicious. I really like the lemon almond cheesecake. They're all good, and they're all covered in 100% chocolate. They're soft and easy to chew. It's like eating a candy bar, but it's good for you. Built Bars are great for anyone who is health conscious. Whether you want to lose weight, maintain weight, or just indulge in a delicious treat, you got to try Built Bars. They're low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, high-fiber, and great for anyone on the keto diet. I've got a deal for you. Go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKEDON, and you'll get 20% off your next order. Again, use promo code LOCKEDON for 20% off at BuiltBar.com. Next one comes from Edgar, who says, It has become a trend that the four teams that reach the conference championship games, at least one of them won't even reach the playoffs next season. Of the four teams that made the conference championship, which team do you think will not make the playoffs in 2021? I think that the team in greater danger of not going back to the playoffs is Tampa Bay. Tom Brady is old. They have a lot of key free agents. And truth be told, I don't think that they're that great. They only got hot at the right time. Green Bay would be in second place because Aaron Rodgers is getting up there in age and they will have a new defensive system. Buffalo and Kansas City, I don't see any way in which they don't make the playoffs. All right, so that's a fun question. I wish I had some data that I could point to that tells us exactly, you know, like how consistent of a trend that is, but I'll take you take your word for it. Um, I think the big thing is going to be injuries. You know, like if uh, any one of these quarterbacks get hurt, I get real nervous about the season for any one of those four teams. But with there being seven teams in every conference that makes the playoffs – I don't see any one of these teams not coming back to the playoffs. Um, I think the team that might be the most in danger might be the Bills. I mean, you have very experienced quarterbacks that have played at a high level for a sustained period of time in Rodgers, Brady, and Mahomes. Josh Allen only has one great year. So, I, I mean... I'm not predicting any of those teams aren't back in the playoffs. But if you made me pick one, it might be the Bills because their defense has to play better. And if Josh Allen has a drop-off and you know they have questions on the offensive line, the run game stays bad, they have to move on from John Brown, and all of a sudden they don't have the weapons. Dawson Knox doesn't take a step forward. They don't get answers at tight end. I think the path for the Bills to kind of have a drop-off is is the most clear. Now, fortunately, they play in a division where I'm not expecting a whole lot from the Jets, Dolphins, and Patriots. So they might have a clear path just because of that, but I think the most volatile team out of those four is the Bills. I also think the Bills have a good chance of winning the Super Bowl. So, Look, I w- I'm not predicting that the Bills don't make the playoffs. I'm not. But if you stack it up against those other teams, right now, based on the information I have, I think it's the Bills. Hopefully you uh, you didn't turn off the podcast and you're still with me. I'm just trying to be honest with you. Next up comes from Tyler, who says, we all know that Trevor Lawrence will easily be the number one pick 
and is one of the best quarterback prospects in decades. But is he the best football player in the draft? I think of other players like Jamal Adams, Saquon Barkley, or Quentin Nelson as players who didn't go first overall, but were arguably considered the best player in the class. So positional importance aside, who are your best five football players in this year's class? Well, I do think that Trevor Lawrence is not only the best quarterback in this year's draft, I think he's the best player in this draft. He'll be the number one player on my draft board. So I'm going to throw all the quarterbacks aside for right now. I'm going to tell you the best five non-quarterbacks in this year's draft. And in my mind, they are Oregon offensive tackle Penny Sewell, Alabama wide receiver Jalen Waddell, Florida tight end Kyle Pitts, LSU wide receiver Jamar Chase, and Virginia Tech cornerback Caleb Farley. Micah Parsons, the linebacker from Penn State, just missed. Just missed. But um, I think it's those guys. And I'm really high on Justin Fields and Zach Wilson. I like Fields above Wilson, but um, I really like what the top of this draft has to offer. So Trevor Lawrence is player one for sure, then Sewell, Waddle, Pitts, Chase, and Farley for me. Andrew says, really been enjoying the offseason discussion so far. The pod with Bruce Nolan was especially good. I was hoping we could get an explanation from you about the differences between 1-3 and 5 technique. Those terms get thrown around a lot, and I have a vague understanding of what they mean, but it would be great if you could give us a rundown of exactly what that means in terms of alignment and responsibilities and skill sets for those players. Your discussion of 10 versus 11 versus 12 personnel was really helpful. I appreciate this question, Andrew, and I encourage anyone that has questions like this to ask them because you're probably not alone, and I'm probably too assuming at times whenever I throw out um, you know, techniques and alignments and different things like that. So 1, 3, and 5 technique, that stands for where they line up on the defensive line. A 1 technique lines up on the outside shoulder of the center, a three technique lines up on the outside shoulder of the guard, and a five technique aligns on the outside shoulder of the offensive tackle. So that's where they play. And now the responsibilities are very different. One and three techniques, those are interior defensive linemen. And ideally, you have a pair of players like Starla Tulay and Ed Oliver. Starla Tulay is the one technique. He controls the middle. He's a guy that um, is supposed to take on blocks, remain stout, and not allow there to be levels or, or create a bubble by conceding ground. He's not asked to penetrate. He's asked to kind of maintain that space right there and allow the linebackers to key and diagnose. A three technique has some of those same responsibilities, but you're more inclined to allow them to penetrate and attack and work through gaps and play on the other side of the line of scrimmage. And so, you know, they're they're further away from the play, right? Slightly further away because they're outside of the guard. So, you know, you require a more athletic type player because there's more distance to cover between the, you know, the the quarterback or the running back in some instances. Five techniques of defensive end. They're going to be lined up on the weak side of the formation usually. And that's what we call a base end. Uh, the the other side of the line of scrimmage is somebody who's going to play outside the tight end or more on the strong side of 
the formation. A five technique in a four three like the Bills run, you know, they're a normal defensive end in terms of responsibilities, except for it's oftentimes a shorter distance to the quarterback. And so you're you're looking to put your less bursty and bendy defensive end at that spot as opposed to over the tight end where that distance is longer to get home to the quarterback and where more burst and bend is required to really uh, win around the outside hip of the blocker. So um, in a 3-4 alignment, that five technique is a two-gapping type player where extension skills and the ability to control at the point of attack really, really matters because then you have that stand-up outside linebacker uh, that's playing outside of you that um, has different responsibilities. But for the Bills defense, that five technique is going to be your base end in a 4-3 front. I hope that was helpful. Hit me up in my DMs if I can further uh, explain anything that um, might have been confusing to you in that response. Kyle says, as happy as I am to have Dable, Frazier, and the coaching staff back after this year, I am equally as happy that our front office and player personnel staff was not poached. If I'm not mistaken, Joe Shane, Dan Morgan, and Brian Gain all received outside interest this offseason but are all returning to the organization. With this past college season being one like we've never experienced before, how important is the fact that Bean was able to retain his guys? Also, if we lose Milano and if Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, who you had mocked to the Bills, is not on the board at 30, would Chaz Surratt be a reach there? So first of all, yes, big, big deal that the front office and player personnel staff was not poached. And I think, you know, you mentioned Shane, Morgan, and Gain. I think about Lake Dawson and Malik Boyd as guys that uh, I was nervous would leave as well, but none of them have. And I think that's a big, big deal, uh, not just for the college scouting side, but the pro scouting where, you know, your ability to get bargain bin free agents is never going to be more important and I think the Bills have done a good job of that in the past. And so having those guys back in place, continuing the work that they have done, and, and uh, obviously you know, you don't start on this, this offseason work now. You start it during the season. And so you, know, you don't lose all that intel and work because they got poached. So, yeah, very, very big deal that not only the coaching staff remains but the front office. The other question he had there was about North Carolina linebacker Chaz Surratt being the pick at 30 if uh, Jeremiah Wusu-Koromoa was off the board. I would say that that's a big-time reach. Um, I like Chaz Surratt. I like him middle of day two at the earliest. Um, I think you're getting a lot of speed and athleticism and range, but you are losing a lot in terms of instincts. and. Um, processing, playing through contact. I mean, it's – that would be a big reach, yes. So I wouldn't. he wouldn't be a target for me at 30. Josh says, I've been thinking a lot about the Bills adding a receiver in free agency, particularly if John Brown gets released. One name I keep coming back to was Curtis Samuel. I really like his skill set and how he'd fit in the Bills wide receiver group. The problem is Spotrack says his market value – is north of $12 million per season. For the Bills to do that, they'd have to give him a higher annual average value than both Diggs and Beasley. Is this, in your opinion, a reason why the Bills wouldn't pursue a wide receiver like Samuel? 
I think we all agree Diggs and Beasley are values at their current cost, but we could risk irritating one or both of our all-pro wide receivers if they make an outsider the highest-paid wide receiver on the roster. I'm left thinking that even if the Bills lose Brown, they'll look to replace him through the draft or with a low-cost, high-upside free agent option like John Ross. Do you agree? Yeah, I don't think the the Bills are in the market for Curtis Samuel. From a skill set perspective, I think he is very interesting because I think you get a lot of what you receive from Isaiah McKenzie. You get some of what you receive from John Brown baked into one player, and that interests me. But um, I don't think that they should be considering a $12 million per year price tag for any wide receiver um, that's on the market. I think they would be better to just keep John Brown and bring back Isaiah McKenzie or restructure John Brown. But the greater point here is that if John Brown isn't back, then the Bills have a hole at receiver that they need to replace. This is a wide receiver-centric offense, and Gabriel Davis doesn't do the same things that John Brown does, and I don't think that he's ready to take that type of a role. And if the Bills lose John Brown, they're losing a lot when it comes to spacing. They need to have a field stretcher. They need a guy that can you know, win at all levels of the field, beat press coverage, and they need to replace that. So hopefully <laughs> we don't have to worry about that and John Brown is back. Um, but if they do, then something has to happen, whether that's Kenny Stills, whether you try John Ross. I'm super low on John Ross. I see that name floated around quite a bit. I, he's He's a very inconsistent football player. It's not just the injuries. It's that he doesn't know how to control his speed. He's not a good route runner. He's not a good catcher of the football. Like He's a very flawed player, and so I'm not interested in him unless it's for a very minimal deal, and I'm not looking at him as a wide receiver too, uh, opposite of Stephon Diggs. So, um, yeah, the Bills are going to be left with a hole and questions on how to fill it if they move on from John Brown. But I don't think Curtis Samuel – is in the mix given his price tag and what the Bills have in terms of cap space. Dan says, love your work. You're killing it with Bills content. I have a thought about the running game and an offseason slash draft idea for you to comment on. Throughout the season, it felt like the Bills were telegraphing their runs. You could almost call them out just by the way they were lined up. Then they seemed slow developing. With defenses getting faster to combat the pass, It felt like the defense was at their spot before the Bills were at theirs. So my thought is the Bills should be running out of the gun way more. It's quick developing, and Allen can easily audible into something better if he doesn't like the look he is getting for the called run. Any thoughts on this? So let's answer that, and then we'll get into his offseason plan here. Um, I wish I had some data to point to that – told me how frequently the Bills ran the ball from gun or from under and what the results were because that would that would tell me a lot. When I think about running the ball out of gun, I think it could be a benefit to the running backs because it gives them a little bit more time to survey the defense, um, plot out their track, adjust on the fly, more so than just handing the ball off from a traditional under center look. Um, but, you know, I I, uh, I would need some data here to really chime in, something that I could, I could really point to because 
there's a reason that they chose to run the ball in the ways that they do. And, you know, there's levels of comfort that running backs have receiving handoffs from different alignments. And sometimes they like that runway to kind of get going. Other guys want to have that static position at the mesh, you know, so there's a lot of layers to it. And I don't know that I, I don't know that I feel super confident in any direction because I don't know that I have the data that I need to really dig into this. Regarding the offseason, Dan says, release Addison, Butler, and Jefferson to sign J.J. Watt. Watt not only would be an upgrade on the field and in the locker room, but can also mentor A.J. Epinesa. I don't know if Epinesa could ask for two better veteran defense events to learn from than Hughes and Watt. Milano gets a payday somewhere else. Resign Daryl Williams. Protecting Josh Allen is and will always be priority number one for me. I honestly think you can sign Feliciano to a average annual value of five to six million. To me, he's an average guard and shouldn't be overpaid. If that's not realistic, then I trust Bean to find the next Feliciano. I would try to restructure slash extend John Brown a year and see if the security of a two-year, ten to twelve million dollar contract would work, bringing his average annual value to five to six million. Then my draft, I traded around and got nine total picks. At 56, linebacker Baron Browning from Ohio State. He fills the Milano role. Number 62, cornerback Ifeatu Melifanus from Syracuse. Number two, corner, an athlete, he says. 73, safety Hampson Nasraldine, Florida State. You've brainwashed me. Number 93, defensive tackle Aleem McNeil. NC State eventual star replacement with a pass rush. Number 129, he goes tackle Walker Little from Stanford. High upside swing tackle or guard. 175, wide receiver Wap Filer from Indiana. Traits in good hands, eventual replacement for Beasley. 209 is running back Chris Evans, Michigan. Traits, figure something out with this guy. And then 215, he has wide receiver Racy McMath from LSU, a special teams player with developmental ability because of his size and speed. And number 230, safety Jacoby Stevens from LSU. Uh, could be a useful tool, special teams, possible linebacker, something about this guy that I like. And then, Dan, finally, please don't roast me too bad. I like the idea of getting J.J. Watt, you know. I'm in on that plan. I'm in on letting Milano walk. I'm in on not overpaying for Feliciano. I am in on bringing back Daryl Williams as the priority of the offseason. As far as your draft, given that you kind of laid the framework for J.J. Watt is here, Daryl Williams is here, Milano is not here, maybe Feliciano. I like what you did in this draft. I'll be honest with you. Um, Baron Browning at 56. Melifondo at 62 are picks I love. Obviously, Nasser Dean I love. McNeil is definitely a guy that I think fits into the rotation as a backup one technique. And when you said goodbye to some of those defensive linemen, a player like that was necessary. I think he's got a high ceiling. I'm really in on McNeil. Uh, so those first four picks I, I love. I know they're all defensive picks. Uh, but you're telling me John Brown's back and I have Darrell Williams. I'm okay with that. Uh, I don't really like Walker Little. Uh, I'm going to pass on him every time I see him in a, in a mock draft. Uh, Filer is interesting to me at 175. Evans is interesting. McMath, um, yeah, I think for special teams, you know, he definitely fits. So he's going to be your Taiwan Jones type player because as a receiver, this guy's got no skill. That's not fair. He doesn't have much skill. He's a very calculated route runner. I think he has terrible hands. But if you're looking for like a Marcus Easley type player that's going to be a, a star on special teams and maybe gets loose down the field and you, you cross your fingers and hope he catches the ball from time to time, 
Uh, I think he can do that for you. Stevens at 230 as a, a Swiss Army knife, developmental sub player, special teams. I'm good with that. So uh, I like it. I like what you got here. I really do. Um, I'm a big fan. Last one today is another mock draft scenario submitted by Sean. I'll respond to each pick as I read them out and tell you what I think about it. At pick 30, he has the Bills taking Notre Dame linebacker Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa. Love the pick. Would never be mad about that. At 62, Trey Smith, guard from Tennessee. That's a pass for me. I think that he is a high-hipped, heavy-footed blocker that doesn't have enough mobility for me to get excited about him. Uh, I have a lot of concerns about him. And he has some heart stuff that's kind of concerning as well. 93, Tyler Shelvin, interior defensive line from LSU. Yeah, he's a tank against the run. I'd like that pick. 162, Patrick Johnson, edge from Tulane. He's one of my favorite sleeper uh, edge prospects in the draft, so I love that one. Uh, Amir Smith-Marset, wide receiver, Iowa at 175. That's a good late-round pick. And then Brian Mills, cornerback, North Carolina Central. I think that's a good pick. He's a he's really lean. I'll say that about him. A thin guy, but I think uh, he gives you some appeal as a late-round cornerback guy that you can develop and, and maybe get something out of down the road. So I don't like the Smith pick, but I, I like the rest of it. So um, not bad. All right, folks, that'll do it for us today here on the podcast. Well, we don't have any more performance review series podcasts to do. Tomorrow won't be herd mentality, but I have some fun concepts lined up I think I'm planned out for like the next two and a half weeks uh, worth of show concepts. So some creative ideas um, and um, just different ways to talk about this team. And and so I'm excited about kind of getting past what we've been talking about and focusing in on some new content. So don't miss it. Make sure you're subscribed, rate, review, and share the podcast. And I look forward to catching up with you again tomorrow. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.